Hey, welcome to Textual Healing. I'm your host, Mallory Smart. On today's episode, I'll be interviewing C.E. Hoffman about some of the strangest things. I somehow managed to sneak the topic of IKEA into the conversation yet again. I'm sorry, I can't help it. It's just a really cool place. But we mainly focus on their latest book, Sluts and Whores. CE is from Canada, and they have been widely published in print and online. They love life and hate bios. I feel that. I totally do. In this episode, I take us into some really strange tangents like horror movies, life in the U.S. versus Canada, internet personas, philosophy, and muses, which is pretty interesting and pretty deep for this episode. At some point in the interview, I ask them an off-the-record question that is reserved for patrons of Textual Healing on Patreon. A link to our Patreon page is on our Twitter bio. Not to say every random thing we discuss in the episode, I think it's time to start the show. Hey, testing, testing. How's it going? Good. One second. I just have to type something in. No worries. Yeah, I started doing online shopping while waiting. (laughs) (laughs) That's a valid pastime. I know. I was just like, I need a new pair of jeans. I'm going to look on Target's website. (laughs) Oh, you're so brave. I can never buy pants online. My hips are a perpetual mystery to me. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) I usually am weary of it, but I'm just too lazy to go. (laughs) That's understandable. I mean, we can't even try things on here still in Edmonton in stores, so it's the same deal. Yeah, they're kind of that way with the Target right now. So my theory is just take a bet, leap of faith. But yeah, I really want a new pair of black jeans like uh, with tears and everything in it. It'll make me feel like I'm living my dream, my best life. Exactly. And Target will help you reach that dream. I approve. I hate that I'm a socialist because I love going (laughs) to Target so much. Like, it's an outing for me. Oh, I know, right? I feel that way about Shoppers Drug Mart up here. I love it. It's like a candy store. I would say for me, it's a clash between Target and Ikea. Do you have an Ikea by you? Yeah, Ikea is awesome. <laughs> we also have Yisk, which is kind of its... Well, they're both Scandinavian, aren't they? So I guess they're competitors. <laughs> See, that's just fun. See, it's weird. Like It is, yet again, like an outing where we'll, I'll even meet my friends to go to Ikea with no intention of buying anything. Well, the maze alone, it is an adventure. We also love to people watch, like we'll go into like one of the room setups and drink like their free coffee. I'm not sure if we're supposed to take that free coffee into the rest of the store, (laughs) but yeah, we're bad people. Oh, are you kidding? I love people watching. That may be an aspect of pre-pandemic life I miss. What we would do is we would like all come together and be like, what are we waiting for? And then whatever person who showed up waiting, like had whatever distinct thing we were waiting for, then we'd be like, okay, we could leave now. It's like a coffee drinking game. Pretty much. You know, coffee is never a game for me, though. I take my (laughs) coffee seriously. (laughs) I can tell. (laughs) I'm on my third cup of the day. Thank you. (laughs) 
But you said you had an all-nighter or something, right? Yeah, I'm embarrassed to say why I didn't sleep, so... Uh-oh, <laughs> then I will not make mention of it, I promise. I just watched some scary movies, and see, it's a difference. I like your traditional slasher horror movies. My boyfriend likes, like, the mindfuck supernatural horror movies, <sighs> and yeah, that, that that shit just did not leave my mind the entire time. Yeah, that's the point of it. That's why I don't like it either. It literally, its aim is to get inside your mind. I mean, getting your body slashed up, whatever, we all gotta go. Exactly. And I think that <laughs> you seem like you could be a final girl. I think I could be a final girl. Like, I think I could take it. I think I could outsmart the killer. Oh, you think that we're like the working virgin archetype as per Cabin in the Woods? <laughs> no, I think we're like the Nev Campbell and Scream type. Wow. Yeah. That's really nice. <laughs> it's very ambitious, but I'm like, you know what? It works. Oh, yeah. Let's aspire together. I love this. <laughs> Or we could like do, because Scream technically had two final girls. They had uh, Courtney Cox and they had Nev Campbell. So we could switch it out, decide who wants to be the reporter or the girl who's being targeted. <laughs> that actually sounds amazing. I don't want to hog the reporter thing, but obviously that's a pretty appealing archetype for me. I like when uh, at the end, this is such an old movie, so I can't actually spoil it. Because if you haven't seen it, then you're a moron. I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> but when like they're doing like the pop quiz and everything, and suddenly uh, Courtney Cox like is showing up at the door with the gun and is like, "Pop quiz, hot shot." Porter's got the gun. That was from the '80s, right? Scream because that's That'd just the, the most '80s. That's '90s. Wow, well, they were holding on to some like upper grade 80s cheese which i respect i really thought it was amazing and you know the style of the hair felt very 80s too <gasps> it does doesn't it but i guess almost any time i see you know a, a sassy chick holding a weapon way too big for her upper body i i think 80s let me see what year it came out specifically <laughs> 1996 okay that well, makes sense that's crazy there's a podcast I listen to called Horror Queers, and um, they do like really crazy um, commentary on every horror movie. And they did each Scream movie, and Scream One and Scream Two came out before Columbine, and that's why they're so oh, bloody and everything. Yeah. But they stayed away from the blood a lot more in Scream Three because it was after Columbine. Wow, it's so crazy how. Everything impacts everything. You know, art impacts culture, culture impacts art. You know, it's like this Eurobos. I find that so fascinating. So wait, how many Scream movies were there? Was it, is it one of the ones where there was like a million? I want to say like the fourth one just came out. God, I can't believe it just came out. It, I think it was like 10 years ago. I, I, I've lost track of time in my life. But there's a new one that's going to come out, I think, next year. And I'm pretty psyched about that because nobody has managed to kill the original three people still. Oh, I love that. Resilience, motherfucker. Yeah. Oh, my God. I just want to, like, get on that podcast so I can just be like, let's all sit around and talk about Nev Campbell, please. Um, it absolutely sounds like you would rock that podcast. You should all seriousness should reach out to them. I really should. They're in Chicago, too, where I'm at. And I was like, somebody tell me where they live. Oh, that's so cool. Especially in the internet age when you can actually find people of your city. You know, I, you could see them in person. 
dude, I don't know. I'm not an in-person person. <laughs> uh, well, then never mind. For, forget they live in Chicago. It's all good. <laughs> like, I, I would probably just lie about my location and be like, I'd like to be on the show. Sorry, I live in New York. <laughs> yeah, like, don't don't try to find me. Don't look me up. But there's no need for that. If you're noticing on my tweets that it says I'm from Chicago, ignore it. Now it says <laughs> I live in a van down by the river. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All lies. Total fabrications. Yeah, I don't think I could ever seriously show my real self on Twitter because it would just be so awkward. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, true self versus virtual persona. I think there's such a wide breadth for so many people now, you know, doesn't even bear thinking about. So what is your internet persona? Oh, that's such a good question. And of course, I'd love to attempt to differentiate myself from the masses and say, oh, no, I'm 100% real. But it's such a it's such a cookie cutter writer's life hashtag. All of my online social interactions, that's all it is. It's all a, a sad little funnel stream for my waiting career. That's honestly all it is. <laughs> I feel you so hard there. It'd be like that sometimes. Yeah, you know, I just feel like, in honesty, it makes sense that that's my emphasis because it's the only reason I even accept those elements of social media into my life is because I think it's important to have, not to have an obsessive presence, but at least some semblance of presence that you can refer agents to. Like, yeah, I'm not scared of the YouTubes. I can YouTube if you need me to kind of thing, you know? Now they're going to require you to TikTok. Can you TikTok? Uh, given that I have a flip phone, it would be difficult. Uh, you're one of those cut off from society types. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm backwoodsy. Well, but again, not really backwoodsy. If you count my parents' basement, which is my current very humble abode, it's kind of backwoods on my pride, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I was going to say like Unabomber, but he had his cool like cabin. <laughs> I would love a Unabomber cabin. Oh my God. That's like, that's an introvert t-shirt right there. That was like another scary thing I dealt with with my boyfriend. Like oh no. a couple of days ago, we watched um, Manhunt and they're looking for the Unabomber. It was a really good TV show. And like totally towards the end when they show the Unabomber's cabin, my boyfriend was like, you know, the guy doesn't have a bad idea. I like that cabin. <laughs> And then later yeah. on, they start like pulling from the Unabomber's manifesto, and my boyfriend's like, "He has a lot of good ideas. I like what he's <gasps> oh, saying." Oh, dude, you can like the cabin, but you can't like the manifesto. Draw your line. I know. It's just like it was such an interesting manifesto. And what's weird is he even like discussed IKEA in his manifesto. Oh my god! Yeah, there's something meaningful there for us. We just discussed IKEA. Are we in the same loop with the Unabomber? We like cabins. We like IKEA. Oh shit! I think of all the serial killers because he definitely. I would count him under serial killer because I don't know what a term would be for mass bomber. mass. That's what it would right. I think it would still fall under mass murderer, right? Because yeah. it was all within a very short duration, and it still wasn't a spree murder. You're still a mass murderer at that point. Well, what's really wild is it's almost kind of zodiac like because he did stop for like a good couple years, and apparently it was because he was afraid that someone did actually spot him, and that's how they got that illustration of his face. Wow, really. Yeah, I know a very unnatural amount of dark stories. That's the way to do it, man. Walk through the fire. You know, I love that Jungian quote, that which you want most 
is where you least want to look. Interesting. I like that. Right. You know, and that's actually it's cool. You being a fan of horror. I like some horror satire, but I'm a total wuss. So horror as an encompassing genre is not my thing. But I have such respect for people who delight in the foray into that like major exposition of human shadow, because in my opinion, that's what those people are doing. They're like, bring it, bring on the dragons. I want to like have a staring contest with the darkness of humanity. I think that's so empowering. See, that is a very good reason. I am obsessed with horror movies, everything but supernatural things. Those freak me out. But I don't know why I think it's more likely that the supernatural thing will happen to me than the very realistic thing. But (laughs) I guess through watching the horror movies, I'm just like, nah, I know how to get through the realistic thing. Aliens. Exactly. I don't know how to fuck with those. Yeah, well, and I love aliens as an archetype, you know, I mean, so many people make the argument that they're like, you know, ancient gods imbued with our, you know, scientific notions, which I just love. But I also just like the idea of them being compared to, I don't know, any ethereal sky being, you know, even fairies. I was listening to a Jungian podcast recently that was comparing them to the mythology of fairies. Apparently, lots of fairy sightings in Ireland and other Celtic lands, they're kind of similar to alien sightings. Like the fairies are long-legged and big-eyed, and you see these similarities overarching. For me, it's funny because I think it, it titillates me in a way in a kind of playful way, because it's kind of scheming with the unknown, which I do love playing with as a really intuitive person. And and for me, it's actually the material things that I shy away from. I'm not a very grounded person, you know, like hearing a person scream, even in frustration, like forget agony or terror, like that chills me to my bone. It's like, oh my God, they're they're stuck in the in the prison, <laughs> the prison of materiality. Ah, <laughs> that's like my horror. That's my horror movie. Is just the sins of the flesh. Like I'm I'm way ungrounded, man. <laughs> I feel like you'd be like incredibly easy to torture. Oh, I think so too. But at the same time, there's this irony where I also have a lot of emotional resilience and pain resistance. Like, honestly, but also awful because it's like the sadist is definitely going for me because I'm super sensitive to pain, but I can also withstand a lot of it. I'm totally fucked. See, I was watching Handmaid's (laughs) Tale yesterday because they released all three of the new episodes on Hulu. And I can't watch it anymore because they like totally tortured the hell out of the main character. And I was like, I, I, I can't, I can't do it anymore. It's too, they're about to like peel her fingers. Yeah. 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 Classic. And I was just like, nah, they wa- waterboarded her and everything. And I was like, I'm mm-hmm. not fucking with this anymore. It seems like they're just trying to make us hate the patriarchy. And we already do. Yeah. Overkill, right? It's like you're seeking overstimulus. It, Originally, I think in an attempt for us to reconsolidate our traumas, that's why we seek overstimulation. But of course, ironically, it tends to do the opposite. It actually increases it. And there's always that fine line in art too. How much is enough? How much is too much? And accepting the reality that that's going to be different for every member of your audience. That's such a complex relationship that we all have with stimulating items, whether they be 
of the material or the abstract form. And I think that there has to be like some hope felt in those kind of like pieces, you know, and if they just don't give you any like time to breathe or feel all right with it, then it's almost, it's like way too stimulating then. Oh, that's exactly what I agree with too. It needs to have a certain ebb and flow as in my writing. I far from shy from darkness. It's very important for me to confront it and be honest about the darkness that I often deal with inside mentally and spiritually. But you always have to smatter that with hope because that's just the reality of life. The reality of life is both. If you choose to be an optimist or a pessimist, that's cool. You know, that's your arsenal for taking on the world and that's fine. But an objective reality will acknowledge both being valid realities. We have dark and we have light. And I think the real task of the individual is to steel ourselves to that and accept the inconsistencies of that. Mm -hmm. I actually have your book, Sluts and Horrors, in front of me. Do you want to give people like a quick synopsis? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it's an own voices dark urban fantasy short story collection. It was just released in February by Thurston Howe Publications. And it being a short story collection, obviously it follows various stories, various different lives. And the overarching theme is that many of these characters are sex workers or are more salacious in their sexual habits. And I try to take these people and really deeply humanize them by putting them into contexts that aren't necessarily inherently sexual and are often actually magical and also both. See, I really got strong Miranda July vibes from it. Were you thinking of any like writers while you're writing it? Well, I really aspire to be some kind of weird mangled bridge between c.s lewis and irvin welsh impressive that's That's definitely the aim that's and i I, it's one of those funny things where my ideal would be to write a book that appeals to both of those audiences of course that is a monumental task i'll probably just have to err on the side of irvin welsh with fantastical elements of course martin miller has been a huge inspiration for me in that area, not to mention a mentor. He's amazing. He's helped me so much on my writing journey. He gave me a review, an advanced review of it and everything. He's awesome. What is your, wow, I'm just blanketly assuming you've tried drugs. Sorry about that. (laughs) I love it. It's like we haven't gotten to the rock and roll yet, but let's just skip to the drugs. (laughs) We'll we'll get to rock and roll afterwards. What's your weirdest high experience? Oh my gosh. Well, (laughs) the weirdest, they were all really weird. I have a very unique brain. I mean, as do we all, but my relations with weed appear increasingly unique. So those often took me down the darker rabbit hole of the unconscious. And a lot of them weren't fun, but I also took a lot of that blood and shit. And I do hope made it into gold. A lot of my concepts for one of my original book series was derived from some really intense delusional episodes I had thanks to cannabis, which is another reason why I do not partake in that substance anymore. But let me try to think of something that's a little bit more, ooh, well, I wanted to go for a softer anecdote, but one time I Jedi flipped. 
How does that even work? Jedi flipping. So that is, let me see if I'm going to get this right. <laughs> that was acid, ecstasy, and mushrooms. That and seems like the right combination. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they're very great at co-mingling, but you know, I, <laughs> it, it, again, it did result in a, an exceptional chapter. At least I, I deem it worthy of that praise. But I'm also really grateful for the experience, as visceral and sometimes terrible as it was, particularly the peak, but it really taught me the importance of adhering at all times to one's integrity, i.e. one's intuition. Because I was actually coming up really nice. I was walking with two people and the snow was kind of flitting down in this small Southern Ontarian town. And I felt so at peace and at one with myself and all I wanted to do was walk on, walk out into the trees, into the trails. But I stifled that impulse in favor of the preconceived plan, which was to go to an event, a DJ event. And, you know, when you turn away from yourself, you incite hell. Yeah, definitely. I, I have to say that from experience as well. I can't imagine you going to a DJ like, do you go to like clubs like that often or? I do love dancing. My baby daddy, I had a daughter who I gave up for adoption. Mm -hmm. uh, he introduced me to all that realm of dance music, you know, funky breaks and, and funk itself, you know, and it obviously since it came to me at a slightly later part of my life, that was my mid twenties, it'll never be my high school sweetheart um, musicals and emo will always hold that space in my heart but it became a really liberating education and oh do i love to dance i love just it's it's probably the one aspect of a truly social post-pandemic life that i'm going to rush back into just going out once a month you know finding a place that has a few funky beats dancing getting disgustingly sweaty and then walking home alone led by the moonlight. There's such, like, that's how I woo myself. I think it's so important for all of us to make love to ourselves and have a real relationship with ourselves. And that's like my favorite date to take me out on. If you're gonna wanna do that, you're gonna have to watch TikTok. <laughs> Cause you know that like that generation who are like now just coming of age and drinking, they're gonna be bringing some pretty impressive dance moves. Oh, don't worry. I'm again, I'm an intuitive. I don't. Yeah, I don't use dance as an extemporization of skill by any means. It's all just completely fun and fluid. And I just there's this great line actually in Swing Time by Zadie Smith, where she says that she doesn't worry about the moves anymore. And she just goes the way the music is telling her to go. I think that's such a valid form of dance. And that's definitely what I practice. I love that book. I didn't perceive you as being a fan of her either. I Zadie Smith is probably, I mean, I have, you know, Irvin Welsh is, is way up there too, but Zadie Smith's Northwest is my favorite contemporary novel, hands down. There's no con contest. I have read that book. I'm easily coming up to dozens of times now. <laughs> I really like Swing Time. Um, she has such a great reading voice. Have oh, you ever like, heard any of her audio? No, never. That's oh so God, interesting. Like, she doesn't just do like 
an amazing voice, she'll actually change it up to sound like different characters. Oh, it's so important to do that, to not so much overdo it. But I did make that attempt in my audiobook for Sluts and Whores, for sure, you know, to at least convey some difference of personality. Like, you know, the intonation that you hope is deliverable through the content that you wrote, Mm -hmm. that's as much as needs to be performed. See, I'm really nervous for my book that's coming out in August. I just got asked by um, Hello America cassette tape if they want me to do like a recording. And I was just like, I don't know if I could do the different voices. And they're like, no, it'd be really great. You have a good voice. And I was like, ah, we'll see. So how long does it take you to do it? Oh, it, it took days for sure days of me basically waking up doing it taking breaks because of course I live with my parents and I didn't want to subject them to silence for for an entire day but yeah it was definitely at least I want to say three days of hard work but it it's a very valuable experience and that interests me that you're you're somewhat shying away from the notion given that of course you host a podcast which is a very verbal affair that is true. But see, I'm able to come up with stuff on the fly. But if you ask me to like read something directly, like say off my phone or something, I'll get like a few stutters in there. Like I'll, I'll get nervous. Yeah, for sure. I mean, stammers are inevitable, especially as you're imprinting the script onto your tongue and your energy field. So for me, practice is always key. And of course, I mean, this book is yours. It's a shred of your soul. So you are more than well acquainted with it. Obviously, you'll make the right choice for you. But I would say definitely make the attempt. At the very least, it'll be another awesome experience to relate on the podcast. My big question with it and the uh, guy who makes the tapes was like, no, I get a lot of sales. And I was like, this is interesting. It's uh, Adam Gennady. I don't know if you know him. No. But Yeah, he said that a lot of people actually still have cassette players, and that floored me. It doesn't surprise me, though. I mean, even the existence of those all-in-one players, people do still like multimodality, which really heartens me, I have to say. See, I have an old CD player. I don't know why. It's just around. I have a record player, and I have all the Bluetooth speakers, like the Google Home and Alexa, and I basically do everything off of my Spotify so maybe yeah, I'll just I'm, get a cassette player. I think you should, or get one of the all-in-ones and do away with <laughs> with all the superfluous items, get them all rolled into one, unless you plan on moving soon, because I, I imagine the all-in-one players are hefty. My dream home also includes a roof garden, which is not likely <laughs> going to manifest, but it's always kind of there in the back of my mind, where if something showed up that did indicate that potential, I would probably jump on it. We actually have quite a few um, rooftop places in the city with gardens. Really? I think it's because we're really trying to reinvent the city because Chicago was always a very dirty industrial (laughs) area. Right. Super gray. A very gray palette. Yeah. It kind of like if you ever been to Milwaukee, it looked a lot like that. And then we suddenly tried to like reinvent it and make it more welcoming to other people. So that's one of the things they did. And they started to like increase park spaces and everything. Oh, that was going to be my next question. What do you have in way of trails? Um, You usually have to go to forest preserves to do right. that. 
we like it's a remarkably flat land i usually my boyfriend and i like to go out of state a couple times a year and like go to more mountainous areas or just hang out in portland and hike we said we're going to go to la this year oh so does portland have goods in the way of hiking oh hell yeah they, really? they even have like uh, really good hills and trees I, I just love the smell of the trees there mm. and they have the mountain too so it's nice i i mean i, I want to go yeah i mean i know mountains are so sacred to a lot of people and i respect that and trees are so sacred to me so i that's where we oh agree. man i love trees. yeah oh they're just they are my, <laughs> they mean so, so much to me. It's like you're returning to a more holistic sense of self when you're near a tree. And that's my stipulation for living in a city. I'm down to live anywhere as long as there's actual trails and actual ravine that I can sink into. <laughs> well, we sadly don't have that in this city, but we do have really cool um, lakes and uh, rivers. Although our rivers smell pretty damn bad. <laughs> so it's more the visual aesthetic yeah i'd say definitely it's a visual aesthetic and also um the bad smelling river is what chicago got its name from in uh native american it was chickamauga and that means smelly water so interesting so it was that way from time immemorial yeah um it was a swamp when chicago was first discovered Chicago was built on a swamp. Yeah, and then after the great Chicago fire, we raised the city, I want to say, 10 feet up, like off of that region. Oh, well, that's so it's so there there yet remains a swamp below. Now there's a horror movie setting. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. What's been in the swamp waiting, waiting to reemerge. Oh, see, that's what I love about horror, right? Is that it is so deeply psychological. You know, it's like, what are you trying to hide? It's going to come get you. And that's just the reality of our psyches. Again, turn over that stone. You're super afraid of there being a spider under because there probably is. And at least that way you'll be in control of that knowledge. <laughs> Uh, spiders freak me out so much. <laughs> that was a good choice, right? There's something so evolutionary in that for us. Spiders, snakes, all of that. It just immediately made me think of that one Blink-182 song, uh, I Miss You. Do you like that? Yeah, catching things and eating their insides. That's yeah. like emblazoned in my brain, that lyric. <laughs> I got a chance to see them two years ago, but it was a <gasps> really? horrible experience. Um Basically, it was at a music festival, Riot Fest, and I don't know, I guess the sound guys didn't like be prepared for the fact that it was going to be really windy that day, so oh, no. we couldn't actually hear the band, we could just really hear the audience singing. <gasps> oh, that's, you know, I think oftentimes there is that infrastructure issue with outdoor festivals. The The sound just doesn't reach enough, you know, again, it's kind of this like, there's a tribalistic essence to live shows. And I think we really do need a tent or a dome for us to fully embody and actualize that feeling of merging together under music. You know, otherwise it just gets lost in the air. It doesn't feel the same. I think if you have a decent enough setup, you can make the live show work. I, I really love music festivals, but... Oh yeah, me too. Yeah, that being said, I still adore them for sure. 
I definitely prefer going to those because you can get so many band experiences in like one day. But I do love uh, regular concerts, but like at mini venues or mid-sized venues. I don't like stadio, uh, stadium ones. Yeah, because it's too isolating. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, there's like you said, there's a diversification of experience with festivals. So there's more of the unexpected in the tribal element to it because you may not be fully with your perceived tribe, right? And then the opposite occurs. You know, there's like almost a a polarization with a concert. Nobody goes to a concert that they don't want to see when it's just one band. So you really have a certain almost fanatical element to it and sometimes a familial trust that arises with that. I mean, so many subcultures are defined by their musical affiliations. You know, music is so deeply sewn into culture. Mm -hmm. Have you been to any music, musical festivals? Do they have them up there? (laughs) <laughs> well, not aren't taught a lot about Canadians. I'm so sorry. No, sorry. No, it was one of those moments when I'm like, you needn't reply sarcastically. See, calm down. <laughs> not taught about the land of the north. We just were told you're very nice. Well, I don't even know how much that is true. I think that that's just almost a euphemism for we really thrive on pretense. You know, we we so rarely come out and actually say what we mean. And that's why I actually, in that aspect, really appreciate British and American culture. I find there's so much more of a bluntness there that I really respect because I'm, I'm a, oh yeah, I'm a deeply felt individual and nothing makes me more mad than there being a raging elephant in the room that it is not permitted to speak of. And I do find a certain willingness to the south and then across the pond for them to just say what's on their mind, uh, even if it's something nasty. And of course, there's, you know, stipulations, obviously, that need to arise from that. But I have a great example when I was in Scotland and I asked a person how their shift was at a grocery store. And she just looked at me and said, rubbish. And she laughed. And I was like, yes, thank you. Thank you for being honest. I didn't just want a cursory. Oh, it's fine. You know, I'm actually willing and ready to connect with you on a human level. And it was so cool that she was willing to meet me there, even if it wasn't pretty. Humanity isn't always pretty, man. It's not always fine. In America, we are definitely that way. You would love it here then. (laughs) I know. I mean, obviously, there's the bipartisan aspects of the American collective concern me because, of course, that's a major oversimplification and oversimplifications are convenient and thereby increase their own dangerousness. So I'm not so keen on that, but there are lots of elements to the American culture that I admire a lot. You know, my, my partner and I were even talking about the declaration of independence the other day. And we were like, Oh my God, what a radical document in the time you know, in the time that it was conceived of. That's just, there's something so amazing there. And and of course, that ripple effect was happening in lots of other places too, but it's still, it is a radical, a philosophically radical document. Oh yeah, without that, the French Revolution wouldn't have happened. Actually, some of the leading people in the French Revolution were people who were helping out in the American Revolution. I know, and the only reason I know that is thanks to Hamilton and, oh my God, musical geek. Yet. 
Oh, I really recommend it. I don't know if this is the actual term people use to describe it, but I describe it as a rap opera because that's what it is. Because I saw like um, images of it and I'm like, yeah, it's probably that way. It's so high art, you know? And to me, that's what, you know, the idea of an opera really is, is it's something that's really organized and foundational and archetypal. And that's what excites me so much about musicals is that they are so archetypal. Like they're the stories we tell again and again, like the music man. I don't know if you've heard of that one. Okay. Awesome. Did you see the, the bad one with, uh, what's his name? The Ferris Bueller guy. Yeah. Oh no. (laughs) He's bad in more than one way. (laughs) Oh yeah. It always disappoints me when someone, yeah, it's just so disappointing. It's like, oh no, that just ruins everything. He's a Chicago icon. Ferris Bueller is like a huge (laughs) Chicago thing. I apologize. I'm so familiar with his face, but yeah, go on. There's my Canadian moment. I'm like, I'm sorry. I hate him, but there's a, that's what you got to own. You have to be like, exactly. sucks. I hate him. Sorry. Not sorry. He like Cary Grant is one of those people I really think needs a smack in the face. I can hardly watch anything with Cary Grant except the Philadelphia story. And I hate that she ends up with him in the end, but that's its own geeky moment. Okay, so there's, in my opinion, a far superior version of The Music Man. I mean, of course, it was on Broadway, too. Uh, It was released either in 1962 or 63. I always mix the years up. But at least you're still acquainted with the mythology of the story. That's still valuable here because I totally have this idea that Harold Hill, the con man, he's like a Dionysian Loki kind of archetype, you know, dancing around, tempting people with pleasure and magic and music. You know, I think that he's such a liberating force. And then, of course, he's also, in all eventuality, grounded by this kind of superior feminine intellect in Marion, you know, who's a virgin archetype, obviously, like she's a quote unquote old maid, ridiculous as that term may seem to us now. But uh, yeah, that's just what I love in, especially when we combine music with storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, music to me was our original form of storytelling before we had evolved and refined our speech enough to actually express narratives. You know, my theory, not that this is my science, but my idea I have is, you know, primordial humans being around the campfire, wanting to connect and communicate and starting to make rhythms by slapping our bodies and our hands together and moving with the fire, that eurythmic aspect to it too, right? It's like music is like our original communication tool to me. I would say it was also a very huge catharsis. A lot of music was part of like rituals and everything before they would do things. Oh, what a beautiful point. I love that. I mean, even if you look at seed mantras, you're literally making certain vibrations with your throat. And that's, again, recognition of us being energetic mass as well as material mass, which is so advanced for the, again, for the time. I mean, if you follow a kind of Darwinian model, you know, of of society, which I personally don't, I think it's way more convoluted than that. I don't think things have been getting steadily better. And I don't think it's degenerative. I don't think things are getting steadily worse. I think it's way too complex to reduce to either of those. But yeah, like, so again, there's that idea where it's like, music is communicative, it's interpersonal, and it's transcendental. Mm -hmm. I'm looking into uh, throat singing. And 
Yeah, I, I've definitely discussed it with a lot of people on the podcast, but I'm reading that it, it's actually banned in certain countries. And why is it banned? Is there a reason for that? Is there some concerns, you know, some like moral qualms? <laughs> it seems like it was yet again a Christian thing. You know how they wow, like to do really? shit. I immediately yet again assume that you're not Christian, but sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I uh, I have an interesting background with religion and spirituality. I was raised in what I would call a more than moderately and above average strict Christian household is how I would try to uh, <laughs> diplomatically See, describe it. They push Jesus on us too much. We go the other way. I mean, there's the inevitable pendulum swing in any area of life. And that's the lasting irony of parents trying to steer their children into one direction. I think that if parents tried to take on a more moderate view of something like that, where it's like, this is what we believe, we're going to teach you about it, we're going to encourage you to do your own digging, because that's the greatest irony of this stuff. It's like, you cannot be forced into a certain spiritual mindset. That's a literal impossibility. It requires your fully, like your fully realized consent on multiple levels. And if you've been raised in a religion, I would argue that you're not actually a member of that religion yet because you've been indoctrinated since birth. You had no choice in that. I, I hesitate to use the term brainwashing, though there is oh, no, an argument for that. Yeah. If I'm part of, well, I'm not part, but I was raised in the Catholic church and mm. brainwashing and conditioning are such heavily like parts of the mass and everything. I also went to Catholic school. Oh, geez. No one I know actually survived being Catholic. We all went to atheists. Hey, but you did survive being Catholic. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. you you recognize that this was restricting you morally, mentally, in your own search for yourself. So you have totally come out revivified from that. Yeah, it just, I was definitely the person when I went to Catholic school and just ever since where I just kind of constantly asked questions and that annoyed mm. my teachers because I was like, this shit doesn't make sense. Come on, help me out here. But no. yeah, I mean, for me, I'm not, I do not identify as atheist. I definitely identify as a spiritual person, you know, but this I is actually cool. Right? It's, and it's cool to get into this because of course, Jung has the theory of the religious instinct and I've been kind of wanting to make an argument that you could just equate the religious instinct to the, to the creative one. Because again, as you so you know acutely stated, religion is a trigger point for a lot of people. And what he's talking about when he talks about the religious instinct, what he's actually talking about is seeking the numinous, seeking that which invokes feelings of meaning, awe, wonder, and connection. And I mean, what better definition to ascribe to the creative urges in all of us? I kind of like to make this, I, I don't know, I want to posit this idea for people that art could be a new kind of secular religion, a place where we find identity and meaning. I mean, the only further question to that, of course, is, you know, the moral arrangement of people's lives, which obviously, you know, institutionalized faiths also supply, which is also a pretty critical factor, you know, as per social development. But when it, when we're talking about like personal religion, which I think is its own is its own path to moral realization. Like if you're just walking around and you don't have to believe in anything other than just 
well, I'm a human, other people are human, life is valuable to me, ergo, something like Black Lives Matter is going to make moral sense to me and I'm going to be on board. That would you know? be called like humanism, I think. Um, but yeah, most writers I know definitely are more spiritual. I can get into spiritual vibes, but I don't think I've spent too much time thinking about it because I've always felt that the human brain is not compatible to understanding some of these things. I think that's okay. First of all, yeah, I have to say I love humanist psychology. Carl Rogers is the bomb. And I, lo I love his the optimism in his philosophy, right? It's, it's kind of the precursor to positive psychology, which is sweet. And I so agree with your other point, which is that, I mean, philosophy, you come into the same problem where you can no longer meet it at an intellectual level. And that's where I think elements like music really deliver us, you know, and not just music, you know, when we're talking like this, we're talking about all art, right? And what art, right? And art is always attempting to express the inexpressible. And music, I think, most succeeds in that. What music um, gets you most into that headspace? <laughs> I'm trying to imagine emo music doing that, but I can't imagine emo music doing that. Well, I can. I mean, uh, Thank You for the Venom was my survival anthem in one of the darkest parts of my life. You know, give me all your poison and give me all your pills and give me all your hopeless hearts and make me ill. You're running after something that she'll never kill. If this is what you want, then fire at will. I mean, that spoke so deeply to the rage and helplessness in my soul, which is just like an existential crisis of being. You know, I'm reading uh, the varieties of religious experience by William James right now. Sorry about that. It is on my mind, though. And he was describing one account of a neurotic individual who so beautifully described anxiety of, as just the terror of being alive. And, and I think that's just so real. So yeah, I think emo has definitely done that for me time and time again, especially my chemical romance. Musicals, of course, will always do that for me as well. You know, the Music Man, Rocket Man is a recent obsession, as is uh, Moulin Rouge on Broadway. They shifted the character dynamics a little bit in the Broadway writing in a way which I think is, it really rounds out and matures all the characters in it. And I really love what they did with that. And yeah, those songs they're in, again, because they're so deeply infused in the story you know, they connect you to the story of the characters, which in turn connects you to the story of every human life. You know, I think that, well, maybe not all music. <laughs> Obviously, it's a broad spectrum of creation, but I think so much music can do that as long as it hitches onto at least one universal, which is probably why love songs still remain the most fucking popular thing ever, right? That's oh, yeah. like the oldest thing ever. <laughs> I actually, I'm pulling up a playlist right now. I hate it. My niece always is like, stop mentioning me on your podcasts, but. Aw, I think it's great you have that relationship with them. Oh yeah, they're so great. But she actually has one called Calm and it's actually, I would have assumed that it would have actually been more uh, chill music, but instead it's actually all emo boy music. 
Awesome. I know. I was just like, good for you. She is like Avril Lavigne, MCR. Some reason Kelly Clarkson. Then she has like Blink-182, shit like that. Oh, my God. Awesome. <laughs> I think the best part is the uh, picture for her playlist is an old MTV uh, <gasps> logo. Wow. Okay. I love that. I love that there's at least some element of... I mean, there always is. There's always some kind of atavistic element to people's music taste, but it's exciting to see a new generation coming into our stuff and it's translatable. Oh, yeah. And again, what's translatable about it? I mean, I so, <laughs> this is going to sound a bit condescending, but I pity people who didn't grow up in their teen years with something like emo mm -hmm. because it speaks to that infinite teenage spirit you know you're on top of the world but you're also a piece of shit you know like it, it it so beautifully encapsulates that extremity of emotion that you experience as a teenager and lucky me i continue to experience as an adult because of my mental health issues so for me it's uh ever relevant i'm i'm hoping perhaps not perpetually so for my entire life but we'll see because i'm sticking around <laughs> hey if i ever have kids i'm gonna teach them emo music i obviously taught my oh. nieces emo music so yeah. yes you did well good on you i am so pleased yeah i consider myself the second mother but really it's more like i'm their main mother my sister doesn't do much doesn't do much in the way of uh, cultural parenting. indoctrination oh, or parenting yeah. at all, I see. She's really, I don't know if she has much culture at all. I'm slamming my sister now. <laughs> I'm staying out of this one. Sisters, don't even go there. That, my, my family is one of those very, like, we are the opposite of probably how Canadians have family gatherings. We're just shitty to each other in a funny way for the most part. But <laughs> well, we at least it's... If it's, if it's jocular and, you know, in good spirit, it's okay. And, you know, it's, it's funny because I think, I mean, obviously we have our share of ridiculous drama. I mean, especially growing up in the, in the prairies, I'm not a very funny comedian, but I have attempted stand-up mm, <laughs> a comedy a few times. It is fun. And once in a while I turn over an idea for a new set that I probably won't actualize. And recently I was thinking about doing a little you know, a little pitch on Edmonton saying like, you know, you're just one degree of separation at all times away from just total white trash here, you know, just like bottom of the barrel drama. And, and I honestly think it's kind of true, but I, I will also agree that I think it's more often that psychological traumas are found in the way of the unspoken tensions, you know, was it Freud? It was probably Freud, you know, that talked about, you know, when a family has a secret, you know, and, and the secret he was often, often referring to there was a father's alcoholism, you know, like there's just, again, same thing, right? There's an elephant in the room and we don't talk about that elephant, least of all when people are over, when we're out at church or wherever, you know, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of pandering to the invisible elephant, but Again, it's, it is an oversimplification for me to project that merely on my country of origin. I mean, that's a, that's a human defense mechanism, which I'm sure exists in all forms oh, in definitely. all civilizations, right? Uh-huh. Oh, no, it definitely does. <laughs> the big secret, you know? And again, that's what I love about 
and art obviously is is so multifunctional, but I do think one of the things it is doing is it is seeking to bring light to whatever we have put in the dark. You know, I mean, because again, music is so emotionally evocative, especially for me, because I'm so sensitive, you know, I'll, I'll just start crying with a song or laughing or dancing or moving with it. It can impact me in such visceral ways, which writing can, but also can't because it's not working from that same place with your body. You know, writing is mostly in the mind and it has a rhythm and it has a dance. Absolutely. It has all of those things, which is beautiful, but it's not the same vibration carrying on the air, hitting your body and by proxy your soul. Do you have a go-to cry song? Oh, what a good question. I don't. Really? Though. Well, well, like one if I were, you right? if I were to pick one, it would probably be Disenchanted on the Black Parade album by MCR. You know, I was there on the day they sold the cards for the queen and I don't know all the lyrics, but we watched our lives on the screen. I hate the ending myself, but it started with an all right scene. And it's just like that melancholy nostalgia. I don't think anything wrenches my gut like nostalgia does, probably mostly because I haven't had a lot of it because as as far as I understand it, nostalgia is pining for days gone by that you wish to return to. And <laughs> there, I, I pretty much always have my eye fixed on my Northern star. I, I like to think my nostalgia awaits me in my future because there's nothing I would call a golden age as of yet. And fuck, thank God. I mean, what hell it would have been to have peaked in high school, you know? See, that's what we like to make fun of each other at our holidays is that at least two of my siblings peaked in high school. Oh, I'm sorry. That was... <laughs> no, funny for us. See, I'm doing the Canadian thing again. Like, uh-oh, I might have made someone feel bad. But I mean, that's also just that's me too. on holidays <laughs> to make them feel bad. Well, then I will save that material if I'm ever invited over. Yeah. With for your November Thanksgiving, right? You guys have Thanksgiving in November, right? Yeah, I also thought it was weird cool. that you guys have Thanksgiving. Like, yeah, in October. Ours is based off of a lie. What is yours based off of? Oh, the same lie, just with uh, like more subtle forms of genocide. Oh, okay. Yeah, we, I mean, At I don't know. You're you more guys polite with your genocide, perhaps. <laughs> oh, exactly. I, I mean, you probably are aware of this at least to some degree, or more likely, you guys had a similar system. I'm really not sure, but we had. Oh, and it's such a such a slimy euphemism. We had things called residential schools where indigenous people were children, were, were kidnapped and taken from their families and, and forced to assimilate yeah, we into that. British culture. Yeah. And, and of course there was just horrific abuse and, and they didn't even shut down, you know, until like a, a ridiculous uh, time. I should know the exact year, but I, I think the last one was open as late as like sometime in the 1970s, which is just horrific. Don't insane. quote me on that though. But yeah, so it's a, uh, and I think in a way that's another reason why I appreciate a blunt spirit mm -hmm. because things that are quiet are more easily hidden. And if it's something painful or toxic or just flat out wrong, that's the worst. It's going to get away with being wrong so much longer than really loud wrongness. Unless again, 
unless of course the the collective consciousness has just turned in favor of mass conformity and will conform what however loud the evil is i mean that's an eventuality we all have to hold in our consciousness it's a scary one but we all need to be aware of that we all need to remain as conscious as possible as hard as that is mm-hmm. yeah i mean we really don't keep that those kind of feelings to ourselves here that's why i actually had to ask you mm. your boundaries because the few people that i've spoken to who are outside of this country they have much more higher boundaries than we do so legit it's probably good that we didn't talk on the 20th because i was probably gonna say a lot of dark jokes like (laughs) hey there's a lot of dark stuff that happened on april 20th and one fun thing it's our weed holiday i don't know if you have that in canada yeah yeah we have 422 absolutely we do i have a cute 420 it's so funny how our anecdotes have strayed into that of drug use. <laughs> but I have an adorable, again, I start, you know, I preface it being like, this is an adorable mushroom anecdote. You're going to love it. And then it's like, spoiler alert, I cried for like six hours. But it's so funny because, again, you know, I, I consolidate that experience and I'm so grateful for it because. Uh, again, my depressive phases are like (laughs) debilitating, you know, and I think that the mushrooms were really just trying to try to help me get some of that excess melancholia out of me, you know, and it was afterwards, it was just so cathartic. I felt so bad for the, the two sweet, sweet little white boys who were, who were with me. And it's funny, they were both wearing beards at the time. So they were, they were really similar. They were kind of like my, my sweet little spiritual bodyguards. Like I just sat under a tree. They literally sat on either side of me and they literally both just held space while I wept. I'm not even kidding. It was actually almost a cosmic occurrence. Like it felt like a a spiritually vital occurrence now that I look back on it. Now, especially in the context of these broader issues we've been addressing here. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, like I just suddenly stopped crying and we all just stood up and hugged and it was all beautiful and okay. And that leads me to something actually, because I felt so profoundly accepted by those two beautiful people uh, who I still know. I still know both of them. Mm -hmm. And sorry, actually one of them is a they, I apologize for Uh, for stating that wrongfully earlier, but, and I think music does that for us so much, you know, music is a beacon to our own darkness because it's empathy. It's asynchronous empathy. You know, Gerard Way wasn't in the room with me all those times. I was really seriously contemplating suicide. And I did have a suicide attempt when I was 13 years old that hospitalized me, but his spirit was there asynchronously saying, I actually understand. And man, that saved my life, man. You know, there's this great Will Harris quote that's like, if your aim is life-changing art, art must change your life. And oh man, I fucking love that quote. It's from a mixed race Superman, which is a great book. I highly recommend it. And it's in a short, easy, accessible read. And I have that quote pasted all over my house. Well, not all over, but it's it's in a few places because I believe that so strongly. And I know that I live that. Mm-hmm. Art has not, again, art has not only saved my life, 
it has changed my life and vice versa. It's done both of those things. Well, as an artist, is there an audience you're trying to reach towards? I would love to be a haven for the misfits. Mm -hmm. That's definitely always been my aim. I think in a way I have often been writing asynchronously to that sad teenage person in the past now, but who's still there, you know, as a timeless entity. I think I'm really trying to write to them and give them the kind of book that they could have hidden in before the bell rang when people were bugging them about their hair or their boots or their glasses, whatever thing it was that apparently, you know, poor little C was doing wrong, <laughs> you know, according to these people, giving them that that little shield. And and gosh, it really would be my dream to be that that place of understanding and empathy for people I haven't even met. But for now, just for the teenage me, that's that's cathartic enough. I'm deeply grateful for that. Mm -hmm. I could definitely see you being for the misfits. I'm like looking at the different uh, names of the stories in Sluts and Whores. And yeah, you definitely go for that. In this. <laughs> like, you I didn't just like shoot your shot. You made your shot. <laughs> Oh, that's sweet to say. And I mean, I love that too, right? The idea, I was on this other excellent podcast, No Life Skills, the other day, and they asked me what themes tend <laughs> to occur in my writing. And I just had to admit, you know, all writers want to pretend like we're so smart and we know exactly what we're writing about, but we're actually usually super unconscious of our own themes, you know, like, and and so I do try to be aware about what kind of, you know, loser misfitly vibes I'm putting out there. But just like the element of darkness in my writing, I think oftentimes it's, it's so deeply conjoined with my sense of self still, like there's still huge ego stories attached to either of those components that I'm not, I don't always notice it when it's there, because it's as a part of me as anything else. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say it's that much dark as it is just, um, cathartic and a little quirky at times. Oh, I'm glad you say that because I like to think I dance on the fringes betwixt darkness and whimsy. And I would agree with you. So many people have been saying things like, oh, horror fans will love this and be warned. It's not for everyone. It's super dark. It's super dark. And yeah, my primary reaction was surprise. Mind. I don't know, but I thought it was great. That's why I was comparing you a little bit to Miranda July because it is odd and quirky and everything and always bordering on whimsy. She's just more light and there's a little bit more darkness in yours. Well, see, I appreciate that. And it's true though. I think we do have to acknowledge you probably have a way higher threshold for darkness than a lot of people. I mean, we did I open the podcast too. talking about scream and the like, <laughs> like That's chainsaws versus aliens. Like. <laughs> oh my God. Chainsaws versus aliens. Now that is a cute, horror podcast name that would actually be a great horror movie <gasps> chainsaws versus it. aliens are the chainsaws sentient no see what it would be <laughs> is a bunch of the guys from texas chainsaw massacre and it would be like that that's how i'm Ooh. imagining army of psychopaths versus army of aliens we need a twist at the end though they don't end up destroying the u.s capitol like they did 
on January 6th. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Yeah. That's the good twist. Or they join forces and then they do take over America and Canada looks that much better than us. Yeah, we can have a shot at the end of some Canadian watching it on their phone and being like, gee whiz, I'm so sorry that happened. (laughs) I have to tell you, I've only met like one other person from Canada and they were from Edmonton and they apologize so much to like everything. I'm not trying to be like be me, but it's actually borderline annoying. It is annoying. You could just tell me how you feel. You could say no to shit like just say what you want. Dude, I think we annoy ourselves. And again, like for me with my personality profile, I'm also highly conscientious, you know, in my big five traits. So I'm zeroed in on my mistakes, not to mention the mistakes of others, which is its own problem. So I basically feel like I need to apologize for my existence in that I have yet to reach some apogee of perfection, which arguably doesn't even exist for humanity. (laughs) But it has been a really good learning for me to stop saying sorry and to stop explaining myself. That's a huge one up here. I I find, especially with feminine people, you know, instead of just saying, oh, hey, can you turn down the light? They'll be like, oh, hey, can you turn turn down the light? I'm really sorry. Like, I don't mean, uh, but it's just hurting my eyes and this and this and this. And it's the same thing, right? It's annoying. You're just like, whatever, I'll turn off the light. Like, I don't need a sonnet about it, you know? Yeah, I feel like you guys are the type that like kind of bend down and say, knock, knock. I'm sorry if it's fine with you. Can you turn off the light? I'd really appreciate it. Sorry again. Thank you so much. Exactly. And the problem with that, people think they're being accommodating, but what they're actually being is spineless. If you want someone to treat you like an equal, you need to come to them with your back up, your back straight, your head high, your elocution on point, if at all possible. And you need to say, hey, this is what I want and wait and prepare yourself for them saying no, you know? And yeah, I think that most Canadians really could benefit from assertiveness lessons, honestly. They should come to college here and we'll we'll (laughs) teach you. That's actually the biggest American flaw, I would say, is that we are so egotistical that we're not afraid, really. And we rarely say sorry. (laughs) Like it's It's, it's the introverted ones like me, we say sorry. Well, yeah, I totally love what you're saying there. I mean, first of all, it's that pendulum swing, right? Ideally, we want a balance between the apologetic Canadian and the egotistical American. And of course, we do have to acknowledge that it's reasonable that some Americans have reached that point of egotism and kind of blind confidence. Oh, yeah. Uh, because of individualism, you know, that that shaped your guys's culture in a way that I don't know individualism has actually shaped anywhere else, except maybe some recent countries, you know, who have had recent revolutions, you know, of which there are a few. And again, that's still a process. You know, we can actually examine the impact of a foundation of individualism on American culture. And I'm actually, (laughs) I'm auditing an intro to law course online right now. It's been really fun and it's American law. And that's one thing that I've really, really noticed is how highly autonomy and independence is valued as well as economics. That's always a consideration is the economic ramifications of something. Sometimes things go backwards. Again, we can't oversimplify, right? It's not wholly degenerative and it's not all getting better. We have, it. you know, it's like 
humanity is the weirdest tap dance ever. We take a few steps forward, a few to the side, a few back, you know, we can't seem to make up our mind, which makes sense because we have so many different forces acting on us. You know, the least of all, just our own mortality, the inevitability of disease and all of those things, especially if you're not a super stress resilient person, you know, I definitely think death anxiety impacts our decisions way more than a lot of people want to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. You know, working from a space of fear is super powerful. That's why, you know, politics often does <laughs> hinge on that. Not to mention even just advertising and viral marketing strategies. So many of those things are looking for heightened, activating emotions, right? Emotions that produce action, which are i.e. activating your fucking nervous system, you know, <laughs> and that's, that's not ideal. Right now I just have a uh, clockwork orange just going through my mind right now of how easy it is to manip manipulate the human brain. But mar marketing is so good at that. They have like separate fields. If you've seen Mad Men at all, where like certain employees and everything, their whole devotion is to see like, what taps into the American psyche when it comes to like this bullshit product or this bullshit product, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like finding again, those like overarching abstractions that a lot of people aren't necessarily conscious of and then manipulating those in a person, you know? And again, so much of that is sympathetic nervous system stuff, which is dangerous because we're overstimulated enough as it is. And we're not supposed to be, continually activated, which unfortunately a lot of us are right now. And it makes us sick. You know, I think one of the best things, that was one thing too, that I learned recently about marketing is if a post or content makes someone feel haha, content, they're way less likely to share it than something that makes them anxious, angry, or excited. And that was really interesting and disappointing for me because I was like, lots of the content I attempt to produce, I want it to be contenting and comforting. I want it to be inspiring. I want it to inspire people to get the fuck out of their heads and off their phones and into the real world as well, you know, but that might not be necessarily activating in the way I actually want it to be. And I'm not, I don't want to cater to that formula because I know it's a formula that will ultimately harm individuals. I don't want to manipulate people. You know, I don't want to hook people. I want to win people of my merit. And that may take longer, but I don't give a fuck because holding on to my integrity is way more important to me. You know, even if I don't actually end up with the same material success, I'm still almost guaranteed to have a longer lasting impact. And at least I can sleep at night. I would say that's definitely the most important part is being true to yourself and not trying to be like, who can I target to like this or exactly, that. exactly. It's just about, and, and again, it's not just about you as important as that is, but it's also about actual relationship building. You know, I really like your philosophy and the art that you do and the art that you cultivate with model and house and your podcast and everything else, you know, I, I want so much to create community in the work that I'm doing as opposed to just creating contacts. See, that's definitely always been my goal is I just want to publish things that make people feel hoping that that makes other people feel. And that's why I never really trust other people to be readers for Malden House because 
I feel like it's hard to explain to them. Like I'm going for experimental writing, but like moving experimental writing, you know? Yeah, because that's what we're looking for. Like looking for the hope in horror. You know, you're looking for the heart of a story. That's what makes us feel. You know, what is it that they say? You know, if you feel it, the reader will feel it. If you don't feel it, they're not going to feel it either. You know, and a fast sell is not the cultivation of culture, you know, and I think that's the problem with the, you know, the over monetizing of the arts right now. I think it's great that people are starting to validate it, you know, from a monetary basis, but then there's also the danger of commodifying it. And I don't want to see that. I want to see people making things that are inherently valuable to themselves and others. There's a person who I won't name, but they mentioned that they're no longer making music because people don't care. You know, nobody's listening to it, so I don't care. And that saddened me so much. And all I could say in response was, well, if it's not inherently satisfying to you just as an art form, then yeah, you, there's no point in making that because it should never be about, oh, how many views, how many likes. I mean, that's, and I'm not saying this necessarily about that person. I'm sure they had, you know, decent intentions about it, but, you know, just focusing on those results of reactivity, that's vanity. That's all that is. I would say there are a vast majority of people in this art world right now who are more consumed with that idea of like, I need people to see this or I feel like it's just not real. But I'd like to say there are a lot of people like you and me who are just, just making it to just feel right and hoping that maybe other people feel it. Yeah, slow and steady, man. That's what we've got to do. I mean, for me, again, looking at archetypes, it's like, the muse is an entity respect your muse you know why would you pimp out your muse for a few likes you know like you should be honored that the muse visits you at all you know you should be like on your knees in gratitude to the freaking muse you should dedicate yourself to her you should respect her ideas i mean that's what i always tell people well <laughs> at least i tell the people in my head when I'm reciting these ideas to myself, you know, you need to prove yourself to your muse. If she lands an idea on your head in the shower, you need to be like, okay, we're writing that down and we're going to work on it. So many people are graced with gifts from the ether and they don't even bother to put it down on paper. You know what I'm saying? You need to prove to your muse that you take her seriously and that you will serve as an appropriate conduit of manifesting those ideas. And then guess what? She's going to show up again. She's going to like you. She's going to say, yeah, you get it. You get me. I can trust you. I dig it. I really do. So do you want to read a little bit? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. I have that. Uh, it's just an excerpt, a short one, but I think it says a lot about the character and a lot about her feelings about music. And I think it's super applicable to a lot of what we've been discussing. The character in question is V. She is still alive when expressing these sentiments. And it's from a story quite near the end of the collection called And Suicide. Music has a power people rarely understand. Edens in the discs. You spin, strangers hug, magic happens. Reverb carries more weight than any revolution. 
Music is the antidote to war. A rave is a peace march stuck inside and sometimes under the stars. I could talk forever about timber, major versus minor, phrasing, beat matching, transition, disharmony, remixing. But when you're escaping a hospital that was supposed to be abandoned, heels kissing dirt, knuckles sucking thunder, there's little time to say anything except hurry. Boys always say I talk too much, especially about music. All right, that was C.E. Hoffman reading some really deep stuff. It was really great. If you want to find out more about them, check out their site, beacons.page slash C.E. Hoffman. And as always, you can look them up on Twitter at C.E. Hoffman. You should definitely look more into their writing. I read Sluts and Horrors, and it was rad as fuck. It was really good, great read. If you're into reading something very spiritual and dark but whimsical all at the same time i think you will love it as always if you want to get to know us more find textual healing on twitter at pod healing and take a look at our website textualpodcast.com if you want to be extra supportive take a look at our patreon page where you can either send us some love or get some behind the scenes content or some merch it's all a mystery until you check out it We are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, leave us a review or a rating. We love it when you send us good vibes. Check out past episodes and keep a lookout for some rad ones coming up. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show.